The Playful Psychologist podcast is hosted by me, Emily Hanlon, a clinical psychologist who primarily works with children and adolescents. This podcast has been designed to offer support to new psychologists who may feel as though they are drowning in uncertainty. It has also been designed to inform and educate parents and teachers on all things child development. Along with some special guests, I explore different aspects of child development, including developmental disorders and emotional regulation, while also advocating for those who may be falling through the cracks in our current system. Hi, guys, and welcome to this week's episode of the Playful Psychologist podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about neuroaffirming practice, which is something that I get questions about a lot. And so I thought, who better to have this conversation with than one of the most neuroaffirming psychologists that I've ever come across, Sandhya. So you may know her from Onwards and Upwards Psychology. I share a lot of her stuff and I am so excited to chat today. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. For those you know who don't know um, who you are, why don't you share a little bit about you and, and the work that you you do? Sure. Um, hi, Emily, and thanks for having me. Um, I listen to your podcast a lot, so that's nice. <laughs> oh, awesome. Um, yeah, so my name is Sandia Menon. I am an educational and developmental psychologist practicing in NAM or Melbourne. I do a lot of resources and education about what neuroaffirming practice is. I guess for clinicians, for teachers, for parents, to really try to inform, you know, different aspects of the environment. Mm. Um, whoever needs to learn about it, I'm there. Mm. Um, I also write books. I've written The Brain Forest and The Rainbow Brain just to help children understand their identity from a neuroaffirming perspective. Mm. So The Brain Forest is actually for all children to understand you know, there are different neurotypes in this world because we need that. It's not just the burden of the autistic or ADHD or dyslexic kid to tell everyone. I think everyone needs to know, hey, there are lots of different types of people in this world. Mm. I think it's such an important resource because we have the brain forest at home and Luca definitely gravitates towards it. And, you know, as far as we're aware, aware right now, like he is not, neurodiverse but it's so cool because he picks it up and he goes I wonder what brain I have or like I wonder what brain and then he goes to like all his school friends and I'm like I wonder like let's check it out together who knows it's so That's cool it. yeah and it's absolutely just removing that stigma totally. and you know sometimes like for clients who are wondering we pick up that brain first and we just go which brain do you identify with yeah. the most and it's all just in really neutral terminology. Mm, mm, that's it. And like, you know, Lucas 3, we've had the book for a while now. It's not a book that you have to say like, oh, like not till they're old. Like you can have these conversations with kids from a really young age. And as they get older, they will take different bits from it and they will learn, you know, different messages from it as, you know, is developmentally appropriate for them. So I, yeah, I, I love it. I, I'm in awe of it. I think it's a really awesome resource. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so why don't we just jump straight into it? Can you tell us, like, what is neuroaffirming practice? What does that refer to, especially when it comes to allied health? Yeah. Um, so neuroaffirming practice is really something that's come from evolutionary psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And it looks at the variations in the way people experience the world as just a normal part of human 
variation. Mm-hmm. We've actually found from looking at genetic studies that our presentation is needed in the gene pool and that's why it continues to present today and has a biological adaptation to it. Mm-hmm. So we're referring to all the ways that we can. And I suppose importantly for me, it's not just with autistic support, but really being quite clear that neurodiversity refers to all the ways that we come. So we're talking about autism, yes, Mm. but also ADHD, dyslexia, Mm. dyspraxia, intellectual disability, apraxia, schizophrenia, you know, really trying to apply that to everyone and not Mm -hmm. just a section. Yeah, I think that is a good point because I think a lot of the time we look at neuroferring practice and I think our default is to go autism. And I think that's a really good point that, yes, autism is encapsulated in that, but that's not all. Like there's a lot of other cool little brains out there and and we need to like be focusing on everything. So then how does neuroaffirming practice kind of differ to some of the stock standard therapeutic approaches that we may see, you know, that we have seen in the past? Yeah, I guess um, what we've seen with a rise in affirming practice is really a shift in narrative. Yeah. So we've stopped looking at, you know, cures for the way that you are and starting to look at your neurotype as more of an identity and what your relationship is with that. So, you know, previously we used to rely on expert opinion mm-hmm. to observe external characteristics Um, And now we're actually just prioritising lived experience voices in understanding the internal world of someone. Mm. So if I apply this to myself, I know, you know, for my behaviour, for example, if someone makes an external observation of my behaviour, often they don't get it right, Mm. right? Someone said that I was rude and selfish for leaving a social gathering, but what was actually happening internally is I was trying to fend off a meltdown. Mm. I didn't want to have an explosion in front of everyone. So I was actually thinking about everyone else and going, I think I need to leave now. Mm. Um, So there's that discrepancy. Yeah. And what we've actually done is so bad. We've applied this external lens to entire minority populations Mm -hmm. and then said that that was evidence-based practice. Yeah. That's um, a, yeah, that's a really good way. I like that example that you've just given. That's a really good way of looking at it that like to the naked eye, it might look like you're being selfish or that you're being rude because you've left. And in your head, you're like, how can I make this more comfortable for everyone? Like, how can I make sure that everyone around me, like who cares about me? Let's make sure. And like the total, like your perspective versus the perspective of everyone else with chalk and cheese. That's right. Yeah. 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 So, you know, what we're doing in Allied Health is really starting to take a client-centered approach. Mm. We're helping people make meaning of their lives and the way that they process information. Totally. So we're stopping that shame cycle and leaning mm-hmm. into more like positive psychology realms. Mm. I think it's so important as well. And I, I've, I've shared this example on the podcast before purely because it upset me so much at the time but um basically I went to an uh, not an even an IAP meeting it was like a, the school asked for a meeting for a child I was working with um who had a diagnosis of ADHD and um they were just like they just didn't know how to help him at all anyway we go to this meeting the parents asked me to attend and we sat there for half an hour and just listened to the teacher and the support staff I don't even know who was present 
telling us all the things that this kid is not doing or that is doing wrong. And they were going on and on. And I said, oh, sorry, can I just interject? This was after half an hour. I was like, can I just interject and ask where his strengths lie? What's he doing really well? And they kind of just looked at me blankly. And I was like, what what does he do really well? Like, what's he good at? Like, give me something here. And I've worked with this kid for months. He's an, He was an awesome kid. He had a lot of strengths. And they couldn't name one thing. They were fluffing around looking for their notes. And I was like, in that moment, I was like, this is exactly, this is what it, why this client-centered approach and this neuroaffirming practice is so important because this kid didn't fit your cookie cutter um, kind of ideal idea of of what a kid should be doing in the classroom and what a kid should look like on paper, and that threw you. You had no idea what to do with him. There was actually nothing wrong with him. He was, you know, he's a great kid who needed a couple of extra supports, and you didn't know what that meant for him. And that was a few years ago, and it's just it's just changed the way I've looked at my practice as well because I'm like oh my oh my god like I I never want parents to experience what those two parents experienced ever again yeah that's it and Mm -hmm. it's I think you know that shift from this kid can't do so many things to we have a kid who's struggling because we're not supporting him the way that he needs to be supported and that's why this is coming out Mm. um Right, so it's just like shifting that narrative a little bit but going, you know, what is he doing? Why is he doing that? And really trying to understand that. So not yeah. just going, well, he can't do this. Why is he finding that hard? Yeah. We're not answering the question. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And often it just does come down to going like, why? Like what's going on for him? Ha- has anyone asked him? <laughs> like let's start yeah. there. I'm sure he's the, you know, he's going to be the best expert on himself. Let's ask him and get some get his response as well um yeah so I yeah I think all that kind of stuff is so important I guess an area where um like I'm noticing a big shift and I've definitely made a lot of changes in you know I think as a psychologist you always have to be adapting and growing as you know you've done more research and that sort of thing but how does neuroaffirming practice kind of change the way that we view social skill development in you know autistic people for example because I think a lot of the time especially with the NDIS that they want like to see the goals and they want to see you reach that social skill goal and if you haven't reached that social skill goal well we're not giving you any more money because you're a waste of it and that sort of thing is is kind of how like it sounds so how does neuroaffirming practice kind of change the way that we view that you know in autistic kids or adults as well yeah one of the big shifts that we're making is radically questioning mm. why is that the benchmark? Yeah, totally. Um, because I know, you know, if I apply that lens to myself, at school I had friends, I just didn't want to play with them all the mm. time. Sometimes I wanted to play by myself and that was relaxing for me and regulating. So this idea that, you know, autistic kids should always be playing with someone, otherwise they are lonely, mm. we're questioning, you know, does that hold up? Mm. Um, so it's stopping applying the same benchmark for everyone and particularly when we apply that to autistic people as opposed to neurotypical people. We have different social communication totally. drives. Yeah. Um, and I guess another way that we've shifted things is when we listen to autistic people, we find that autistic people have better social experiences when talking to other autistic people 
Um, so, and that has been theorised and tested as the double empathy problem. Mm. So Catherine Crompton and her colleagues in 2020, she played Broken Telephone with three research groups. One was all autistic, one all allistic, so not autistic, and then the third group was mixed, so alternating autistic, allistic, autistic, allistic. Mm-hmm. And the research results actually showed that when the group was homogenous, communication was fine. <laughs> and when they mixed the groups, communication broke down. Mm. And that's really kind of showing us that autistic people have autistic social skills and autistic communication styles. So rather than you need social skills training because you don't have social skills, it's saying you have autistic social skills and would you like to understand what autistic social skills are and how they are different to neurotypical communication skills? Mm. Um, And some people would go, yes, I want to learn about neurotypical social rules. And some people will say, no, I'm really happy with my communication and I don't want to change that. Mm. Um, That's It's so important because, like, in every other aspect, you know, we always say something is only a problem if it's a problem for you, right? And if yeah. it's not a problem for you, then great. There's no need to, to work on that because it's not something you're identifying that you want to work on. But if it is, here are the, here, you know, let, let's skill you up a little bit. And if you want to use those skills, then go for it. But we shouldn't be saying here are the skills and you have to use them. It's here are some skills. And if the situation arises that you feel like they may be useful for you, then you've got some up your sleeve. That's right. You know, the social skill goal of you have to ask someone to play with you three out of five times a week, you know. (laughs) I didn't even do that. (laughs) Those those goals. (laughs) The goals are so, like, sometimes I read, like, especially, you know, with NDIS, we're in Australia, so we have NDIS here. I read some of the goals and I'm like, who did AI write this? Like, who wrote these goals? They're so bad. Yeah. Um, And it's so fascinating if, you know, if we can make that personal leap of how would you feel if you had a goal like this? Totally. Or put into this box of you have to do this consistently and not kind of listen to your body and how you feel on different days. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's um, such a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're starting to be more humanistic in our approaches, which is a shift that we have needed to make. Oh, my God, 100%. 100%. So what are some of the positive aspects that research shows us come along when we do take more of a humanistic, person-centred, neuroaffirming approach? Yeah, so I guess what we found is telling people that they're autistic and having better autism acceptance has led to some positive mental health Mm -hmm. um, benefits. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, really it plays an important role in preventing mental health decline. Yeah. Um, So what we're trying to do is disentangle your neurotype from mental health conditions. Like we... We've always thought, you know, autistic people, oh, they've got co-occurring anxiety. Yeah. Without really questioning why is why? that? It's because <laughs> the world's not built for them. Yeah. That's why they have anxiety about going out places. Um, so if we can try to tease that apart, you know, try to look at what does a happy autistic person look like? What does, you know, a happy schizophrenic person look like? Mm. Um, I think that's the direction that we're trying to go with neuroaffirming practice. Mm. Um, And when we talk to them about, you know, what is your identity? What is your relationship with the world? How do you process information? 
that all leads to better self-concept. Mm. Now, this research has showed us that if you have good self-concept, that has huge flow-on impacts. Totally. So you're much more likely to have you know, better fulfilment in your personal life, in your relationships, in your work. Um, it informs everything. Yeah, it's it's yeah. so true. And it sounds so like when, when you say it, it's like, duh, like, you know what I mean? Like you say, and it's like, no shit. But like, why, why has it taken us this long? Why, why do you think it's taken us this long actually to kind of get to this point where we're starting to shift and see some change? Yeah. I think we've done it in the name of this is good for you. Yeah. Okay. Right? So these benchmarks are traditional benchmarks that we would like you to meet yeah. for success in society. Yeah right, socialising, right, so you have to have friends um, and you have to meet them in person. Um, so we've got all, it's, I call it neurotypical ethnocentrism mm-hmm. where we've gone here are the benchmarks and anything outside of the benchmarks need to kind of just fit into that mould. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, and now we're kind of questioning, was that the right thing to do? Um did we conceptualize society just in a fundamentally wrong way? Yeah, yeah. Which, uh, yeah. Spoiler alert. Yes, we we did. Yeah. <laughs> Big time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that that occurs, you know, all the time. Um, and I'm glad that we're in this space where we're actually kind of calling that out. And something I do in my practice is talk about the harms that therapy has actually caused. So what, what we're hearing from autistic adults who are exposed to traditional best practice approaches is that the focus on compliance mm-hmm. made them quite vulnerable in their relationships, for example. They just okay. felt the need to please others. And that has led to some really high domestic violence statistics in sure. our population. So sure. 9 out of 10 of autistic people have experienced domestic violence or wow. sexual assault. And that's really high because that's, we just yeah. aim to please. Yeah, that's frightening, um, actually. I didn't realise the statistic was that high. Yeah. And, you know, people are walking away from therapy and later coming back with PTSD diagnoses. Um, and, you know, we know that higher rates of masking have led to higher rates of stress, anxiety, depression. And the key thing for me, higher rates of suicide in, like, um, ideation yeah right? because they don't know who they are they're just constantly wanting to please other people mm. and you know perform the way that people expect them to mm. without thinking about who am I mm. like, what yeah. do I want who am I like, fundamental do I question. like where where where's my space where's my role in society because we've spent all these younger years going well actually whoever you are doesn't really matter because this is who we want you to be that's right, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's um, awful. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're working on writing that wrong now. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's it. And I was like, I think we're in a position, so for those of you who don't know, my younger brother is autistic. He, I say young, like younger as if he's like five, he's like 27 now. So he's a full blown adult, but in my eyes will always be eight years old. Um, And he, we, I think, Interestingly, when he was diagnosed, there was no information kind of available. The advice that my my mum was given from doctors were have another 
child, forget about this one, there's no hope for him. And it was very negative from the outset. It was, this child is never going to walk. This child is never going to talk. This child is never going to be able to achieve anything. Well, he walks, he talks. He's one of the funniest people I've literally ever met in my life. And I think sometimes it's about going even back to pre-diagnosis and going, why is it that if this child has that diagnosis, why are you scaring the shit out of parents and going, sorry, we're so sorry. It doesn't always have to come with like a warning label or this sucks, we're so sorry. Hey, uh, don't worry about this one. You've got another kid or have another one. It has to, we have to go, okay, well, like how can we be proactive? Let's learn about your child. Let's talk about all the amazing things that they may be able to achieve with a little bit of tailored support. Do you find that like, I don't know, for me, I still find even like 20 years later that parents receive a diagnosis and come to me and they're so they're so depressed about it or they're so scared and obviously no one wants their child to go through any sort of difficulty if they don't have to but do you find that that's kind of where parents are coming to you and and they're so stressed about what's to come um there there are some grief narratives yes but Mm -hmm. usually when I guess people come to me um they might have done some pre-work as to who I am <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. kind of narrative I'm likely to offer. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is not just showing the grief narrative but showing the really positive yeah. identity. Um, and I think for me, you know, really questioning the benchmarks that we mm. have for you know, and some I'm going to share this. My cousin, he drowned and died and was brought back to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the traditional benchmarks, we don't have those benchmarks of even walking or talking or toileting, and he's 25. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we have is a really funny, I want to say kid because he's my younger cousin, but again, you know, what we have is an amazing person who has a sense of humour, yeah. who communicates using eye contact, who communicates using an iPad, and we have access to his internal world of, you know, what is your favourite music? Love Shakira. Oh, my you know? God, I and love that. Just, you know, yeah, we're like, do you want to listen to Waka Waka? Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> um, right? So it's just like taking away these things of like what normal is even yes. and going, I'm going to see you as a person yeah. with, you know, a love for the world and where is, where? what do you love? Yeah. Right? And getting to ask everyone that. Yes. Um, Right, and like sharing interests with them. So mm. I hang out with him and we're like, let's listen to music or I'm going to, you know, scroll my phone and show you some photos. Um, yeah, so, you know, being quite radical in what we were expecting and really seeing the full spectrum of how people come. Totally. And I think it's so important, like it doesn't have to be this grief narrative. And, you know, there are, there's, the world is anyone's oyster. It's what we, you know, how we support someone to go through that. And it is getting onto that holistic, humanistic, person-centered level in order to figure out what that means for them. And I think as well, just on a really like, obviously a much more surface level, we've come a long way, like, like, I don't, you know, 
even 15 years ago, it was all you, if you didn't go to uni, you weren't successful. And like, that's just being chucked out the window now. Like, you know, so I think in some ways in general, we're starting to go like, oh, success is actually defined by an individual. It's not necessarily defined by a community anymore. Um, So I think that's really awesome. I just, yeah, I just want to see that then reach everyone and not just someone that can like voice their opinion verbally, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I think in the community we're talking about the move away from mouth words. Yes. To, you know, not just the focus is on speech, but the focus mm. is on communication. Yes. How yes. does a person get their needs and wants met? Mm-hmm. That's it, hundred percent. Um, because like you said, like your cousin, you know, communicates using his iPad and through eye contact and that sort of thing, and he sounds hilarious. Like, <laughs> love that. So, yeah. but if we focused on the fact that the the communication wasn't verbal, if we only focus on that, we would miss all these am- amazing qualities about like the way he sees the world and what he wants out of the world. You know, so that's I think right. that's a great example. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Okay. So tell us, uh, like, I'm in awe of some of the stuff you do. I know you've gone overseas and you've been, like, um, like changing the world, basically. So tell us about some of the stuff that you're doing now through your work and how you're kind of um, sharing this information with as many people who will listen. Yeah. Yeah, so I started off, you know, trying to increase my hours at the clinic and I realised that that wasn't working. I couldn't reach people kind of fast enough Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so what I do is I've got an online self-paced course so Mm -hmm. anyone who is raising an autistic person or an ADHD they can go and just immediately access this course and it is you know six to ten hours but broken down into small bits about everything you need to know to understand your child to advocate for your child to meet your child's needs Mm. Um, so we've got those online courses kind of ready to access I do talks at school to help teachers understand you know how do the neurodivergent students in their class process information so not what they don't do but what do they do what do they need from you yes I love we know that you know from an educational perspective the move is away from learning styles to more multimodal instruction so I like this idea of if you change the way you teach to be more multimodal, everybody benefits. Totally. Totally. Um, Speaking my language, yeah. man. Like, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I always say there's so many strategies that, like, that teachers might look at and go, oh, that's one extra thing I have to do. But nine and 9.999 times out of 10, that one strategy actually benefits the whole class. You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. And again, you know, even for teachers, it's to move away from their box of this is how I've always done it to this is a style of instruction that is different. But once you learn the overarching kind of strategy, it's going to help meet everybody's needs in your classroom. It's going to help you be a more effective teacher, not just for a certain subsection of your class, but for everyone. Everyone. Yes, I love that. Uh, and where, like, obviously you've just in your three minutes of spare time have written two of the most amazing books that I've ever come across. Uh, where can people find those? Like where where can we access those? Yeah, so the best way to access them is on my website, mm-hmm. um, onwardsandupwardspsychology.com.au, mm-hmm. and there is a shop section. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I, I am also work, working on a third book, cool. so look out for that maybe mid to early next year. Yes. Um, yeah, so that one it will be all about how we actually regulate our emotions Ooh. according to how we n- regulate our nervous system. So lo- looking at how we balance our energy. Oh, my gosh. Rather I than, you know, just when I feel angry, I do, you know, three deep breaths and I squeeze Yeah, them. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, which it's we all more know. looking at yeah looking <laughs> at emotions in a holistic perspective and getting kids to understand um how they are and why they get so angry oh I'm looking forward to that that sounds like it's going to help a lot of young people <laughs> can't <Yeah>. wait to <laughs> see no, oh. um, I put I put some gremlins in there <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, <laughs> I love just love gremlins it's like it's going to be a really fun book to read um oh, looking yeah. forward to that that sounds so so good well what I'm going to do is I am going to link all um the website and social media and everything so that you guys can follow along um like I said your page is um a really a, a wealth of knowledge for everyone I think uh, clinicians and parents who are just navigating this alike or you know anyone that has anything to do with anyone who you know may not be quote unquote typical and I mean we we all come into contact with different people and different brains every day. So I think it's a really awesome message that you're spreading. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge with us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. And thanks everyone for listening. (laughs) 